Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Chris McDaniel, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio is... Jason Rosenbaum. And... Joe Manis. And our special guest this week... Greg Keller. I'm the uh, principal of Atlas Strategy Group here in St. Louis. And this is one of the times when we have a non-elected official on. Jason, have you been keeping track of how many we've had? We've had zillions. No, we've we've had a few. And we we always feel like these are the best ones because they're not in elected office, so they really could say whatever they want. I think this is the third. I think well, this might be actually, the third. no, it's fourth. 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 Okay. Well, well, wait a minute. No. Okay, I, I know this off the top of my head. We've had Steve <laughs> Tilly on. We've had oh, Jane Duker. I, I did, I forgot we've had Jeff Rowe, James Harris, um, Jeff Abusi. Yes. All and, right. And I was way off then. Never so mind. It's like the I fifth. take it back. But he's clearly has the best hair. Oh, thank you for <laughs> that. Thank that you very just much. So people, just so <laughs> listeners know, uh, Mr. Keller mm-hmm. uh, is a Republican. Correct. And, and is a consultant to various Republican groups and causes and candidates. So he, he's kind of a big deal. Yeah. So we're trying <laughs> to get we want to give you a sense of the Republican perspective here looking um, ahead for towards the election in a couple of weeks and also the next big one in a couple of years. So how long have you been consulting and, and how did you get into it? Yeah. So I started in uh, Missouri Republican politics in 2001, graduated from college in 99 and moved out to uh, the East Coast and worked in finance in Boston for my first where, two years where out of college. Where did you go to college? Went to Florida State in Tallahassee, oh. moved up to Boston for no other reason at the time than that I had a brother living there who I could crash with for free for a few months. But mm-hmm. you grew up here? Did grow up here. Okay. Yep. Big question. Clayton High School. <laughs> okay. Now, did you, go to, did you go to high school with Senator Maria Chappelle Nadal? We were at Clayton at the exact same time. She is, to this day, my favorite Democrat in all of Missouri politics. <laughs> because you went to the same high school? No, because she's a lovely person. I mean, we've literally been friends since uh, I was 15 years old. Yeah, just just amazing how politics makes strange facts. We, yeah, we need, to, just like we need to look Duker. up those yearbook photos. But please don't. <laughs> it's just like Jane Duker went was to our high school prom with John Deal. I mean, I, Oh, that's I awesome. Oh, that's, that's funny. <laughs> uh, everything in St. Louis is high school. But, <laughs> but yes, please continue. So I studied extensively Spanish when I was in college, so I was doing Latin American equity research out in Boston for a couple years. Married my, uh, well, moved home to marry my high school sweetheart, also a Clayton High School alum, Joe. Um, And I was interviewing for finance positions uh, in St. Louis, but as you would imagine, there's something of a dearth of finance positions in St. Louis, Missouri, where you can do Latin American equity research. (laughs) And my father had been friends going back many years with Jim Talent. My dad, I was having a phone call with with my dad, and he said, listen, I know you're interviewing for finance positions, but you certainly have some free time on your hands. Why don't you go ahead and volunteer for for Talent? He's thinking about, not he hadn't announced at that point, but he's thinking about running for Senate. And uh, it was a Senate Exploratory Committee. I started volunteering on a Monday, um, and literally they offered me a job. The f- that same Wednesday. Mm, so I yeah. got hired as a staff assistant, like literally answering phones, taking out the trash. That's how I first met Greg, yes. because um, I was traveling with talent, and Greg was the driver a That's few right. times. Yep, I was the body man the entire yeah. cycle. <laughs> I remember that in rural Missouri, we're out in rural Missouri yep. at a fast food place. And, and that, was, like that. that was his second statewide mm-hmm. race in, in two years. Correct. And uh, he had just lost narrowly to Bob Holden and that was a bit of a comeback in for him. In 2000. Because he obviously won and became a U.S. senator. That's what, right. what was it like working with him? It was just an absolute whirlwind. So I started as a staff assistant, literally answering the phones, taking out trash. And in a short period of time, I guess, you know, because I owned a fair number, I like actually owned a couple ties. They were like, okay, let's put them on the road with talent. <laughs> so I spent the next 
15 months of my life, I mean 18, 20 hours a day, yeah. seven days a week as his body man, which means anywhere he went, anytime, I was with him. So in the course of you know those 15 months, went to all 114 of Missouri's counties. And, and talent, I mean, what a workhorse. I mean, we went in 2002 alone. We did 75 trips to Springfield. Not 75 events in 2002. 75 separate trips to Greene County. Wow. We did 200,000 miles in the space of 15 months. And it was just the most amazing learning. I mean, you talk about a crash course in Missouri politics. So it got me to this point where after the 2002 campaign, I knew all the county coordinators. I I knew all the donors. I knew all the political operatives. I knew all the elected officials all across the state. So when the Bush-Cheney campaign came along, I was the first person they hired here in Missouri in 2004. Mm-hmm. So in 2004, I was coalitions and communications right. director simultaneously for the Bush-Cheney campaign here in Missouri. First person they hired. As you guys remember, in 2004, the entire ballgame was Ohio, yes. Missouri, and Florida. Yes. And we were able to push the Kerry campaign out in September of 2004, mm-hmm. which really became the first domino to fall for Bush Cheney that cycle. So I volunteered to be redeployed after we, you know, kicked him out of Missouri. They sent me to New Hampshire where I headed up the grassroots and the legal effort for the campaign in New Hampshire. And then in 2006, Talent asked me, I went back to his staff as his um, state director, ran his Missouri operation, and then he asked me to run his reelection campaign. Right. And that was a less successful election campaign for, for Talent in 2006. It was an interesting election because a lot of Republican incumbents lost due to some gaffe or scandal. Conrad Burns comes to mind, but talent really didn't fall into any of that trap. So it's sort of kind of caught in the wave of that year, which is a very bad year for Republicans. The anti-Iraq war, kind of everything, just that that wave. And I remember um, because I was covering that campaign and you could sort of feel it a little bit at the end. And I remember I followed him around. I and um, for like most of that last week. But it was interesting in that it was one of those elections where you could see that there were events beyond the candidates' control. I mean, and now McCaskill and Talent were both very good candidates. I want to emphasize it was one of those campaigns where I felt like I was covering two really sharp people who really knew their stuff. Yep. But... Again, it was a year where you could see that there was events and things going on in a mood that was going to affect it. Yeah, it, and and they couldn't do anything about it. it was, is it, that fair? Yeah, it was. It was I mean, it, it was. Anytime you can work for someone like Jim Talent, it's a wonderful experience because he, to this day, is one of the finest human beings I've ever known in my life, and continue to, you know, call upon him as one of my closest friends. However, working on that campaign was a horrible experience in the sense that you woke up every single morning. And as a Republican running a targeted U.S. Senate campaign, you knew something bad was going to happen over the course of that day. It was going to directly impact your job and your campaign. There was nothing you could do about it, and it was not your fault. Mm -hmm. Katrina, what on earth are we going to do about Katrina? And yet it is redounding in a negative fashion to our credit. So, you know, we ran, I would argue, and I think nonpartisan political analysts have borne this out, we ran a fantastic campaign. I mean, no less authority than Stuart Rothenberg said that talent ran the best incumbent campaign of the 2006 cycle. And talent lost by two in a year when Rick Santorum was losing by double digits, Mike DeWine was losing by double digits, Lincoln Chafee was was losing by double digits. So I was personally and professionally, I was in this weird situation where although I had just run a losing U.S. Senate campaign, it had been viewed as such a well-run campaign in such a horrendous year that my career just kind of, the loss was 
still a huge deal in a positive way for now, now before career. we kind of move on on your timeline i think there's been kind of every election cycle some speculation that talent is going to jump back into the statewide fray it happened in 2008 definitely happened in 2012 and He's taken a pass each time. And I think there's been kind of some understanding. He ran three statewide campaigns in the 2000s. And I don't think people were necessarily begrudging him for turning down another hard-fought one. But do you think he's out of the political arena for good? Or do you think he might come back in some form in Missouri? Well, I, I think in politics, you certainly never say never. And, you know, the party and the powers that be continue to always approach Jim every time there's an opportunity because obviously he has tremendous statewide name ID. He has a, a, a recognizable brand within the Missouri Republican Party and towards the electorate at large. He's one of the greatest fundraisers that the Republican Party you know, has ever had here in Missouri. But I think he's doing a whole lot of things right now, particularly in the, in the defense space that he finds. You know, he is, you know, a lot of people were saying it was going to be, if Mitt Romney had gotten through, a lot of people were saying that it was either going to be White House Chief of Staff Jim Talent if he wanted it, or it was going to be Secretary of Defense Jim Talent. Right. And so, you know, you never say never, but he's really working on things that he really loves and enjoys and has become one of the top, if he wasn't already, and he probably was, but is just recognized as one of the top practitioners in those spaces. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so after 2006, what, because I saw you in several things, but uh, I think our listeners need to know. Sort of what was your arc then, and now you have your own consulting firm. Yeah, so after the 2006 campaign, I kind of felt like I had done a lot of things in Missouri politics and was kind of hopeful of trying things out on more of of a national level. So I had a a, a bunch of opportunities. Um, I had an opportunity to run a U.S. Senate campaign. After Talents 06 campaign, I had an opportunity to run a top-targeted U.S. Senate campaign in North Carolina for Elizabeth Dole. I had an opportunity that uh, John McCain, who was then the Republican frontrunner, asked me, uh, his campaign asked me to run Iowa for his campaign, which is pretty significant. I mean, the frontrunner asked you to run his Iowa campaign. Um, and then Mitt, Mitt Romney came along. And I had been offered jobs with and around Mitt Romney several, multiple times previously, and had always taken a pass, but had really become a Mitt Romney believer. This is uh, the very end of 2006, 2007, and was offered... An, I really wanted to get a job on a viable presidential campaign and have a portfolio within that campaign that was national in scope. So I didn't I didn't want to be responsible for a state anymore. I felt like I had already proven to myself that I can run a highly highly successful political operation in a top targeted state for a presidential or a statewide campaign. What I really felt I needed to prove to myself was that I could do something similar for the entire nation, run a successful operation across the entire country. So Romney kind of offered me what I wanted, which was a headquarters job that was national in scope. So he asked me and invited me to become his national coalitions director, which I did. And I moved up to uh, Boston and was his national coalitions director for all of 2007 uh, and into 2008. Mm -hmm. And he didn't get the nomination, but he came uh, basically a strong second. I don't know if Huckabee finished ahead of him, but he was obviously viable enough to get the nomination in 12. Yeah, I mean, people kind of thought that I was crazy. Friends of mine thought that I was crazy saying no to, you know, running targeted states for for the front runner at the time to go with this guy who was stuck at 2 or 3% in the polls and really had no profile amongst, you know, primary voters in the Republican Party. But I just really believed in the guy, and we somehow, a lot of what I ended up doing for him and how I got into this niche of doing kind of the the center-right conservative Mm -hmm. stuff was that we put together the entire conservative apparatus for Mitt Romney nationwide to the point that, you know, we got he became the conservative alternative to John McCain, which yeah. is kind of funny to to think about. Now. Yeah, because obviously he was not the conservative alternative in twelve. 
So, mm-hmm. so after that, you you worked for CPAC. If I'm not yeah. So, so at that point, so I did that. I did the Romney campaign. Um, I did uh, took on a couple contracts. I was senior advisor to the McCain campaign here in Missouri in 2008, which was like you know the only you know targeted state that McCain won that cycle. And then I got invited to um, help launch the Faith and Freedom Coalition, which is uh, now America's kind of premier and largest social conservative political organization headquartered out of Atlanta, started by Ralph Reed of Christian Coalition fame. I've known Ralph for – had known Ralph at that point for 10 years. He came to me and said, hey, I want to launch this new thing. It's going to be you know, the next big thing in American politics. I need you to kind of help me launch it. So I uh, commuted uh, to Atlanta for a year there, helped Ralph launch that, got them through the 2010 election cycle – uh, we raised millions and millions of dollars, did something like 60 million voter contacts to conservative households in the Tea Party successful tsunami year of 2010. And at that point got picked up um, uh, to run the American Conservative Union and CPAC. So, you know, CPAC, obviously the big confab, and that's a project yeah. of ACU. And, I, and that's when I ran into most recently, I mean, aside from just around town, was during the CPAC thing, what, about a year ago? CPAC they did their was, September. Uh, that wasn't that long ago, was it? It doesn't. It, it was like a year ago, wasn't it? Your, guys, your, your memories would be better than mine on that. Yeah, because I, I remember it being, I think, in September. I think it was the fall. Uh, you might be right. You might be right. The, the point is, right. the point is, he was there, right. and that's all that matters. So. Yeah. Right, 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 yeah. right. So right. the American Conservative Union is like the umbrella group for the American Conservative movement. So it's the longest-standing grassroots conservative organization in America. They put on CPAC every year, which is the most important political event that goes on in America every single year. So I ran the American Conservative. It was founded by Bill Buckley. Yeah, you know, been around forever. And stages CPAC. So we did not only the national CPAC, but we did, you know, regional CPACs with the, the one here in St. Louis. Yeah, the one is, at yeah. actually St. Charles. Right. Correct. Yeah. The smorgasbord of conservative speakers. Go yep. ahead. Um, so I did that for, I, I ran ACU and CPAC for about three years, and that was a fantastic job. Commuted to D.C., you know, every week for three for three years and had a fantastic experience there. But that job, I mean, it's just, it's a meat grinder because, I mean, contrary to popular opinion, the conservative movement is incredibly ideologically diverse. And any as soon as you – if you're running the American Conservative Union and you do something that makes the libertarians happy, well, congratulations. You just made all the social conservatives mad. And, yeah. and, and that is true in the defense space. You do something that makes the hawks happy. Well, congratulations. Now the non-interventionists are not speaking with you. And so it's just it's – a, it's a wonderful job. It was a great experience. It's a. It was also kind of a meat grinder kind of job. And after three years, I was like, okay. I'd also been commuting for eight years straight at that point. I have three kids. And so, um, you know, looking for an opportunity not just to do my own thing but spend some more time at home in St. Louis. So the big question is what do you do now? Yeah. So um, I founded my firm. It's uh, Atlas Strategy Group in January of 2014. The majority of the work that I do is center-right coalition building for corporations and trade associations. So to the extent that I still do Missouri political stuff, it's stuff that really comes to me. I don't, I don't really seek out a lot of Missouri work. Now, I'm fortunate to have worked in Missouri politics long enough and I think have a reputation as someone who's you know, easy to work with that a fair amount of this stuff comes to me. But the bread and butter of what I do is helping AT&T with their public – that's not a client. I'm using this as a generic yes. example. Um, but you know, let's say AT&T, who again is not a client, but let's say they need to kill a bill in Senate Judiciary in Washington, D.C. They do what they've always done in the space of public policy. They hire lobbyists. They join a trade association. They start a PAC. Well, at this point in American politics, that's just enough to keep you even with the herd. What I do kind of amplifies and augments that. So let's say – 
AT&T wants to kill this bill in Senate Judiciary, they come to me and I go and I get all the center-right, Tea Party, conservative, libertarian think tanks uh-huh. and grassroots organizations banging on Senate Judiciary members about how they want to kill this and that is completely consonant and consistent with free market ideology. Mm-hmm. So what I do just kind of amplifies the other government relations tasks that have always been done. Now, I know locally, like I ran into you about a week ago at the Rand Paul's if mm-hmm. He was here for the Show Me Institute. Mm-hmm. So are you doing stuff for the Show Me Institute or Sinkfeld or what? No, I mean, I, I don't talk about any. Uh, I'll talk publicly about my naturally my political okay. clients. Okay. So, um, but as far as my corporate clients are concerned, no, I mean, I okay. don't. Okay. Okay. No, that's okay. Mm-hmm. And But you are doing some work for what? Uh, auditor? Yeah. So I'm with, I'm with uh, Tom Schweik, who's running... Uh, his re-election campaign for auditor this cycle. It's a, it's a really this hotly November. contested race. <laughs> there yeah, right? No, there is no Democratic We're component. sweating. <laughs> I, I, I heard a rumor that he's not doing any polling on that race, but <laughs> right. I feel like he's going to outflank the Constitution Party candidate and the Libertarian. <laughs> but that's just a rumor I've heard. But continue. Um, yeah, so I'm helping him. Uh, I just signed up uh, last week um, another client here in Missouri that's uh, – of or going to be of a of a statewide nature that that announcement hasn't come okay. down yet. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. <laughs> um, and then just getting ready for 2016, which I think is going to be a really busy year. Now, yeah. But before we get to 2016, let's talk a yeah. little bit about 2014 because I I have classified this as a pretty sleepy election cycle, and some people have disagreed because the county executives race has gotten really heated. But I think statewide, there's just not enough races to reach that critical mass that. 2008 or 2010 were right or 2012 even so to me if you live in st louis this, the county executive's race is important if you live elsewhere there's really only four state senate races of consequences and a handful of state rep races and some ballot initiatives if i'm mm-hmm. if i'm wrong here please correct yeah, me yeah, but give us your thoughts but what's your thought no i think you're right I, I, you know i mean any year when uh, when the state auditor's race is the top of the ticket race, it's it's not you know the most active year. There's no U.S. Senate campaign. There's no gubernatorial campaign. And not only that, but Schweik is obviously going to cruise towards a re-election because the Democrats decided to not – well, they did have a candidate against him. The candidate then realized that there was no way that he could muster the support he needed to take to take him on. Um, so not only is the top of the ticket race an auditor's campaign, but it's it's you know one they're not even contesting. I think the first time in 140 some yes. years that the Democrats have not put up a candidate against a statewide elected Republican, which is pretty amazing. Um, so yeah, I mean I think everyone's watching, but even these state rep and these in these state senate campaigns, while important, um, the likelihood that they're going to flip the supermajority in one direction or another is not hugely likely. Yeah, no. and both parties sort of admit that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like again. I think when I say there's four competitive ones, I would say that really two of them are very competitive. One of them is kind of on the cusp of competitiveness. I'm talking about the Schaff-Stuber race in St. Louis, yeah. St. Joseph. But yeah. there's kind of a feeling like Schaff has Schaff is fine yeah. because he's never even come close to losing. And then the, the Schieffer-Jeannie Riddle race, which is a Democratic seat, I haven't seen any Missouri Democratic Party money go there. Yeah. It's a very Republican district. It's kind of just assumed that Riddle is favored heavily in that race. Yeah, that's right. I think you're right about both of those races. I think both of those people expect to see go in the Republican direction. Now, the two that are very interesting to folks is the the uh, kind of the South County race, Jeffco race. Yeah, the 22nd district. Yeah, which is Rorta, who's the Democrat, running against Paul Weiland. 
And that's a barn burner. I mean, there's been uh, polling released on that one recently that showed Wyland up by, I, I want to say, three or four points. I think most people think that he has the advantage. He just took a huge slug of money um, from, I believe, the one of the party apparatus. Yes, yeah. which brings us to yeah the, the question is that often for, this is kind of education for listeners here, often you can get a sense, whether you b- believe in the polls or not, and I have mixed feelings depending on who did the polls, you can kind of get a sense of what po- internal polls are showing by just following the money. Mm-hmm. And if there's a lot of money from, let's say, the state party or from some major donors in either side mm-hmm. that all of a sudden get dumped into a race, that usually is a sign that they think they've got a strong chance. And the prime example most recent would be uh, the 250000 that the uh, state Republican Party gave over the weekend to Jay Ashcroft in the 24th District. Now, they previously had given... Uh, a hefty sum. I think it's around three hundred grand. Right to Wheeland. Uh, um, so, just speaking in general, what does that mean or not mean? And yeah, it, it means that the Republican Party stands a very good chance. I think of picking up one or both of or they those think seats. they do. Yeah, yeah. And, and and the polling right now is obviously within a couple points, one way or the other. I think Wyland is probably up by a little bit more than that. My sense of the Wyland race, you know, is probably up by a few. I think the Ashcroft race is kind of you know, a point or two here or there. I think the other thing that's interesting about about the, um, the, the, the the race that Jay Ashcroft finds himself in, I mean, first of all, you have someone with the last name of Ashcroft running in the Creve Corps, Olivet area. That's yeah. obviously interesting. And also you have Jill Shoup, who really is kind of a world beater in terms of being a, a candidate for Senate. I mean, she's been around for a long time. She's a great candidate. She's a huge fundraiser. Um, I don't think it would ever happen, but she's someone who they have talked about as maybe being a future statewide candidate for office. So not only do you have the opportunity from a Republican perspective to get an Ashcroft into office, and he's raising a ton of money and has proven to be a very solid candidate, but you have an opportunity to take out one of the Democrats' most favored candidates running anywhere right now. And of course, that's been a huge problem for Republicans. The one place where we've fallen down in recent years politically in this state is with the elected officials. You know, we didn't, you know, kill the you know the candidacy in the womb of people like jason kander or clint zweifel or something or like that chris Coster. or chris coster <laughs> you know um so i think that that there's pe- people are even more excited about the possibility of you know maybe knocking down or knocking out someone who could maybe come to haunt us in a more substantial manner well i got a question kind of about the jeffco race because one of the things i found interesting is kind of how both candidates kind of chafe against the overall messaging of both parties um so paul whelan for example has come out against right to work and all has come out as basically pro-union when all these other major republican figures like kinder tim jones whatever are talking about this issue like it's the biggest thing in the world. And then meanwhile, Rorda, who is getting, you know, $100,000 from the Missouri Democratic Party, which is essentially Claire McCaskill and Chris Coster's money, (laughs) and they're talking about how this legislature is crazy for passing all these, you know, gun bills and anti-abortion bills and Sharia law bills. He's voting for all of those bills. Mm -hmm. And it seems like, well, I think he he is, there's a little bit of a backlash against him. Mm -hmm. It just seems like there's they need to win that seat so badly yeah. that they just don't care about those yeah. things. It seems well, like it's on both well, sides. Well, and he's a former policeman, and uh, he's you know 
be, become a key figure in some of this Ferguson stuff, actually on behalf of police. And he believes, I've talked to him several times, he believes that really helps him down there. So uh, my yeah. question is, is that race kind of typifying that this election cycle is not really about ideology, but it's just about winning, essentially? I think that's right, because it's so important. I think the common thread also is just that people are tired of, more so than usual, they're tired of politics as usual. They're tired of kind of the two-party system and same old, same old Democrats and same old, same old Republicans. So you see someone like Wyland kind of taking some positions that Republicans haven't always taken. You see someone like Rorta doing the same thing. I mean, my goodness. I mean, the guy is in the greater St. Louis area running as a Democrat. And for all intents and purposes, people think he's taken the Darren Wilson side of this whole Ferguson thing. I mean, that's pretty astonishing, really. Right, right, right. And But does that help him? I mean, just strategically. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Just strategically. We're not talking yeah. about. I say greater St. Louis area, like greater, or, or, or. I mean, it's right. like, it's Jeffco. It's like way south. Now, yeah. and then you've got St. Louis County Executive, where mm-hmm. you've got uh, Democrat Steve Stanger, who also is kind of a key figure in the Ferguson thing because he's allied with um, County, County Prosecutor Bob McCullough. And then you've got Republican Rick Stream, who has gotten some African-American support. Yeah. But so far, if you look at the money, at least as of the last campaign report, Stanger still had a substantial edge, and Stream wasn't getting some of this huge party money that these uh, legislative candidates have gotten without taking sides or anything. Do you expect that at some point, if the polling remains close or is close, that Stream will get some, or if he won't? I think that's already started. I think you've started to see that in just kind of the most recent days. I, I, I've I've seen several kind of notably sized uh, contributions on, on the reportables of late, and I think you're going to see... I think you're going to see more of those. I think Republicans really see an opportunity here to pick up this seat. I mean, not only is does Rick Stream have a you know nice kind of visage and, and a nice look and a nice kind of a soft touch that you need as a Republican running in St. Louis County, but obviously, I mean, this whole Ferguson thing is just tearing the Democrat Party in St. Louis apart. You know, you see, you know, people like Maria Chappelle Nadal just verbally, you know, just going after the, the the sitting Democrat governor of this state every single day. You see Democrat African Americans coming out in support of uh, of Rick Stream. I mean, so it's like it's kind of like a, a perfect storm. It's an off-year election. Steve Stanger frankly is not a very good candidate. Rick Stream is a pretty good candidate and the whole Ferguson thing. I mean, it's just if Republicans are ever going to win this seat again, this is the year. Let's get back to that $250,000 check. It's Currently, October 20th, when we're recording this, the election is not that far away. About two weeks. About two weeks away. $250,000. Yeah. How how would you spend that other than uh, hiring a consulting firm? Because like a lot of the TV, uh, and, I mean, <laughs> the backdrop here, a lot of the TV ads time, if this was a presidential year, they wouldn't even be able to buy right. any additional and, time and, because and they have to reserve TV it. ads aren't, aren't that efficient of a way, considering Correct. it's a small district that we're talking about for state senate correct Does, mm-hmm. would you use it for more mailers what would you use that for i mean well, just mail is, in yeah, general mail is going to be you know y- you would put some of it in a mail but mail takes a long time to produce i mean you got to come up with the piece you got to come up with the creative you got to print it you got to you know you got to stamp it you got to mail it um you're sending it bulk rate so it takes a long time to send it so you're gonna you're not gonna put that you you probably are gonna put some of that money in the mail but the vast but but the vast majority of it you're gonna put into things that can be that can put lead on the target now robocalls absolutely yeah um I would do, you know, you would do as much TV as you can. Um, as you said, I mean, the, the challenge here is how do you spend 
on a state Senate campaign, $250,000 in the space of two and a half weeks. That's your challenge is getting it all out the door. You're going to put as much on TV as you can, assuming that you can still buy. And because there aren't that many elections this year, there's no presidential, there's no gubernatorial, there's no U.S. Senate. There is still affordable ad time left to be bought. There's also no huge ballot initiatives this -hmm. year that are really being strongly contested on the airways. So you still can buy TV. You'd want to go heavily into radio. You'd want to go heavily into digital. You'd want to go heavily into into phone calls. Um, But maybe you get another mail piece or two out, but mail pieces are, are... pretty time-consuming to put together. My question on that, I think one of the reasons why Shoop has maybe an ideological advantage is there are pretty sizable pockets of Democratic voters in that district. And I think you actually live in that district, if I'm not mistaken. Right near it, yeah. Yeah, and I, my grandfather and uncle live it, so I know it reasonably well. Mm-hmm. So Shoop has what I would consider a liberal to moderate voting record on a lot of things. And in many state Senate races, especially out-state, you would probably have to, like, either in your last year before you run, either start voting really, really conservative or, you know, downplay that. Right. She doesn't have to do that. No. She can just basically run on her record and may actually help her mm-hmm. galvanize those types of voters, whereas Ashcroft can't really do the same. He can't really come out and say, you know— I love guns. I hate abortion. I want to right. do all these Republican I'm things. Medicaid expansion. I'm against mm-hmm. Medicaid expansion because that could alienate some pockets of voters. Is that kind of an issue, regardless of the money? I, th- I think they have two equal and opposite uh, and opposite strengths in this in this space. She has the flexibility to be what she wants to be. Part of it is because of the makeup of the district. Part of it is because she's been around for so long. I mean, she was on the county council. She's been a state city rep, council. City council. I'm yes. sorry. School she's, board on the school board i mean she has been a presence in that community for a long time and people in that community really like her on the democrat side he has his opposite advantage is that he has no voting record yeah yes. so there's nothing that you can you can you can't say oh hey medicaid expansion he voted against it therefore right. he's a troglodyte therefore no right thinking you know person from olivet can vote for him troglodyte yeah, yeah. Now, now you were talking just in general before we went on the air about uh i mean Jay Ashcroft is a first-time candidate, although he's from a political family, and of course he's watched his dad mm-hmm. run and win most of his races, and I've covered most of those <laughs> uh, over the last uh, 20-some years. Now, but when you're dealing with a first-time candidate, are there challenges? Yeah. I, Especially I, if they're in the business field? Yeah, I've worked for some first-time candidates, and first-time candidates are always challenging, and I would actually say that the more successful someone is outside of politics— there's an inversely proportionate relationship between how successful someone is outside of politics and how easy they are to work for inside of politics. So, for instance, let's say you're working for a CEO who's worth $100 million, who made his money, whatever, in finance or construction or whatever. This guy's always been a world beater in the, in the world of business. And he's going to come to politics and he's going to think that he just naturally is going to be a world beater. But the discipline is completely different. The skill set is completely different. And not only that, they're a CEO, so they're used to making all the decisions themselves. And they're and used to having other people do stuff for them. I'm sorry? And they're used to having other people do stuff for them, including, like, knocking on doors. It's not like these guys are yeah. going to be used to knocking on doors. Well, the problem with CEOs is that CEOs want to make every decision on everything all the time. And campaigns are too multifaceted and move too quickly oh, okay. for CEOs. CEOs think in terms of quarters and business cycles and years. Well, when you work on a campaign— it doesn't matter that you make the perfect decision. What matters is that you make a decision. Mm-hmm. Even if you make the wrong decision, who cares? We'll fix it tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So CEOs want to like sit around and like think big 
not all CEOs, but in my experience, a lot of CEOs want to sit around and spend two weeks making a decision. And they're just poorly served by spending too much time making a decision that is never perfect because no decision is ever perfect. You just got to make a decision. In politics, you got to make a decision and you got to go. So let's do some quick hits on 2016 because we are running a little low on time. First of all, do you think your high school classmate Maria Chappelle Nadal will run against (laughs) Lacey Clay? Uh, Boy, I sure hope so. I mean, I think I think she's she's my favorite Democrat in uh, in Missouri politics today. I think I think she'd give him a credible run. Do you think that she could beat him? Because a lot of people yes. don't like Lacey Clay for yes. various reasons. But when he gets that campaign machine revving, he is a pretty difficult person to beat. Why do you think that she would be better than, say, Russ Carnahan, for example? Well, I think she's just been able to get, you know, really, I think she would be more energetic. I mean, Maria is an extremely energetic person. I think she would uh, out-campaign Lacey pretty substantially. I think she'd be able to raise a decent amount of money. I think she now has something of a national profile. I mean, look at what have ha- what's happened to, like, her Twitter followership or the Twitter yeah. followership. Well, since she's unlocked it, that also helps. Yeah, that helps too. But I mean, you know, when you're on MSNBC every other day yeah. for, for two months, that helps too. Um, and she's really gotten to his left and been much more high profile in this whole thing, uh, in this whole Ferguson thing than, than he has. And I think she's going to have some ability ideologically to get to his left and say, I'm going to be more effective on behalf of our community because I'm actually going to work it. So yeah. now, now broader. Okay. 2016. Who do you? Th- I mean, okay, you're a little maybe a little biased here because you're working for Schweik, mm-hmm. but still looking at it. I mean, what do you see as 2016 on a state level and national level? Are are we going to be a presidential battleground, or are the Republicans just going to assume they've got us? Uh, do you think that? Uh, yeah, I, I know it's difficult. Some Republicans feel they're in a difficult position because Coster has raised so much money. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, Missouri is not going to be a bellwether at the presidential level. Okay. I, I I wrote something today. Um, wrote a blog post today, and, and the gist of it was that I'm tired of Republicans belly aching and complaining about our field in 2016. It's a fantastic field. We have something for everyone, whether you are a Republican, a Libertarian, a conservative, a social conservative, whatever. If you like Libertarians, you get Rand Paul. You want a blue-collar upper Midwesterner, you got Scott Walker. You want a Bushy, we got we potentially have Jeb. You want a South Florida phenom? You got Marco Rubio. You want a SoCo? You got you know either Rick Santorum or Huckabee. You want a turnaround type governor? You got uh, uh, Rick Perry. Um, Where does Cruz fit in? Cruz is like the truest of the true believers. Okay. You know, I mean, people are super excited about his candidacy. Okay, because Jeff Rowe is representing Cruz, just so people know. Oh yeah, and 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 I I love Ted Cruz. I think he'll be a, and Jeff is a hugely talented guy, and I expect that he's assuming he runs that campaign, and I expect that he will. I think they're going to do very well. So for the governor's race, though, I mean, again, for full disclosure, as we already know, you're, you're working for Schweik now. Is it possible for the Republicans to avoid a, a difficult, nasty, expensive primary that could give Chris Coster an advantage? Or could it be a situation that even if there is a primary, the winner of that may go up against Coster more ready to fight or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the numbers, I think you have to conclude that even with a primary, you know, Republicans can win that, you know, and um, and so, I, you know, I don't think that there's any reason for people to be overly pessimistic about the situation. I think we have two good candidates running. Um, and I think that potentially either one of them could. Now, I, I work for Tom Schweik. Obviously, I believe that Tom is the guy and that he has strengths that Catherine and her candidacy do not. Um, but I think that, you know, either of them, I certainly think Tom could win. And I think that there's a potential scenario where Catherine maybe could too. What's the key for beating Coster? Because I know that he gets kind of ripped by a lot of Republicans for switching sides and being a turncoat or whatever. But He's seen as pretty universally as pretty formidable. What do you think the key is to beating him? Yeah, you know, you can't just say, oh, you know, if you attack him for the fact that he used to be a, a Republican and now he's a Democrat, 
that is not going to motivate people to vote against him. What you need to do is you need to turn it into a character issue. And so what I would do is I would say, hey, listen, I mean, this is one small sin amongst many larger sins. So let's talk about pro-life. Here's where he was. Here's who he is. Here's on the gay marriage thing. Here's where he was. Here's where he is. Here's where he was on taxes and spending. So you make it more about, you know, and I'm not, you make it more about someone who you just can't pin down on any one particular issue and you need to make it about who he is as a person and not just about switching parties because no one really, your average voter does not care that the guy switched parties. If anything, it probably makes him a little bit more attractive rather than less. Okay. Just one quick question. One more question. Will Lieutenant Governor Peter Kinder run for a fourth term in 2016? <laughs> I've seen, I've, I've not seen any evidence that leads me to believe that, that he won't, but I am not privy to any inside information there. Yeah. All right. I'm going to close this out here. I'm going to throw out one thing, though. Joe was absolutely correct. CPAC St. Louis was a year ago. It feels like six months ago. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I, yeah, I, <laughs> my timing is bad. Um, you can read all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at, at CSMcDaniel. Jason. Jay Rosenbaum. And Joe. At Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And you can be followed on Twitter as well. At R. Greg Keller. R-G-R-E-G-G-K-E-L-L-E-R. R at Greg Keller's hair. Greg Keller hair. That would be the, the, the alternate. <laughs> Hashtag. Yes. We'll be back next week. Until then, so long.